Hello, and welcome to this brand new ED podcast. I'm Luke Nichols, editor of ED.net, and I'm joined here in a fairly quiet room in our publishing house here by uh, two ED reporters. Do you want to introduce yourself, guys? Hi there, my name's Matt Mace. I am a reporter for ED.net. Uh, my name's George Ogilvy. I'm also a reporter for ED.net. And so, Sustainable Business Covered is the name of this podcast. Quite an obvious choice of title, considering it's our, our strapline here, but also because it's exactly what this podcast will do. Every Friday, we hope, uh, we'll use this podcast to round up the past week's news and events and bring you some, some you know, unique insight and advice through exclusive interviews with industry experts. And you'll be pleased to hear that this podcast is and always will be free for ED readers. All of the episodes will be available directly on the website each week, and the podcast will be live on iTunes in the coming weeks, so we'll keep you posted with a link for that when, when it's live. And what a week it's been to, to launch this first episode. I mean, it's, of course, a huge week for us here. Um, we had the e Awards on Monday night up in Birmingham. And then just next to that, for the remaining two days, we had, uh, from Tuesday and Wednesday, we had ED Live, a two-day exhibition. Um, so coming up in this episode, we're going to be having exclusive interviews with uh, Aldersgate Group's director, David Simmons, Carillion's Chief Sustainability Officer, David Pickton, Interserve's Finance Director and Head of Sustainability, Tim Haywood, Innovate UK's Lead Technologist for Resource Efficiency, Nick Cliff, RAP's Chief Executive, Liz Goodwin, and Interface's Sustainability Director, Ramon Aratia. So a, a, a long lineup there of six ED Live speaker interviews to plough through in this first episode of Sustainable Business Covered then. But I thought the best way of segueing into those interviews uh, that we conducted at ED Live would, would be if we actually, if we all provided maybe one takeaway experience from the two-day show. Could be a particular theme that ran throughout or one particular session or perhaps just one thing that was said during the two days that we found particularly inspiring. And so perhaps to make things a bit easier for you, Matt and George, I'll start. Um, so the thing I found most uh, amazing, personally inspiring about the show and there is quite a lot to choose from, but it was probably to be able to see firsthand the huge variety of people and personalities that are really now driving the modern day sustainability agenda. So as an example, um, the morning session that I chaired on the Leaders Theatre on day two yesterday, um, there was a particular session on disruptive business models, great session, really, really inspiring. Um, and the panel discussion that we had for that session, um, there was a point where sat on my left I had Liz Goodwin, a real veteran of, of sustainability and resource efficiency. Um, and we'll hear, hear more from her actually later on in this podcast. And she was she came she came to the show. She was very smartly dressed, gave a fantastic, quite formal speech about the future and what needs to happen to drive a, a global circular economy. And then sat to my right was um, Ari Kestin, the CEO of Nimba. That's that social delivery service. Uh, which uses uses the sharing economy essentially to shake up um, the, the delivery market. And Harry uh, rocked up in his uh, jeans and trainers, had no sort of written or formal speech to give, but instead kind of walked emphatically around the stage, really talking about how, how companies like his really are the future. Um, and we also on that same panel actually had Daniel O'Connor, who has uh, one of the best job titles in the world. He's head of customer happiness at Warpit. Uh, that's that furniture redistribution network, which essentially works with businesses to to reuse and recycle redundant resources like office furniture and equipment. Daniel, again, was a very unique character, incredibly insightful and engaging in that session. Um, but yeah, just very unique. And I think it's that, from my perspective, it's that uniqueness at ED Live that I found really great because I think you can, you really need that that great mix of personalities and styles to be able to 
to drive change across such a variety of industries. Anyway, that was just one of my thoughts uh, that I was left with from the show. Matt, uh, I'll bring you in here. I mean, uh, this was your first ED Live. It was, yeah, it was. It was uh, quite the experience yeah. as well. Lots to, lots to take in then. Was there one thing that stood out for you? Um, it was one thing, um, but it only really hit me during one specific session. And it wasn't something I really kind of captured how how impressive it was until, you know, the lights of ED Live had kind of turned off and I was, I was sitting in my hotel room thinking, actually... This and and the the point was that this is something that businesses they really want mm. they really want to drive this agenda and I think in my personal opinions you know government is there to in, enforce this but businesses aren't looking at government anymore they mm. are turning to one another to really promote it it's why it's a revolution it's mm. going it's going against the grain mm. and I was sitting in the resource efficiency theatre with um, Forum from the Future and rap and they were kind of talking about this whole fashion waste industry thing mm. and NGOs do what NGOs do they put stuff in place to create a sustainable future mm. but the audience wanted to know you know who's going to take up the mantra who's going to be this kind of beacon that's going to take this on and push it and luckily for us we had um we had uh, Charles Dickinson from Primark sitting in the audience and oh, yeah. and he basically just stood up and this was this was the good thing about AD Live it's it's experts talking to people who want to become experts mm. so the theme and the hunger is there and he, he announced you know they're going to join raps uh, two kind of flagship initiatives yep, that was so that was in the audience he was an audience member in one of the sessions yeah so he, he wasn't he wasn't even a speaker he was someone who is at this huge company that's done so so much already in terms of like sustainable uh, business practices that picked up on award the night before oh, and yeah, he's yeah. come along just to sit in the audience and and hear about mm. something that his business can be a part of mm. and that was that was a take-home fact for me all these audience members were were businesses and they wanted to figure out how they can improve sustainability within their business and it's it's important and it's hugely encouraging that companies big and small are so hungry for this mm. and you got a nice little exclusive from that prime up piece as well so which is always a bonus yeah <laughs> double benefit um and so george bringing you in uh, again this was your first show Two, uh, obviously relatively new here at ED reporting on sustainable business. So what was it that you learned or gained from the show, if anything? I think following on from Matt's point, what I learned was that from listening to speakers in the Leaders Theatre is that the groundwork has already been laid for sustainability mm -hmm. um, and it's up to businesses to exploit these opportunities. Mm -hmm. So through... Drivers of change such as resource scarcity, population growth and climate change. I think it was David Simmons who said, business as usual approach is now over. Um, and then to pick up from that, Ramon talked about business approaches needing uh, like a bottom-up model. Yeah. So whether that be incorporating help from the market team, sales, getting everyone on board mm. and everyone pulling in the right direction. Mm. That's um, so. Yeah, I thought it was really encouraging. Yeah, David, so it was a good, good, uh, good way to, to segue into our, our into our first interview, actually, which was with David Simmons. Um, so this was on uh, day one of the show, and I managed to grab uh, David. It was about I think nine o'clock, and queues at this point. Do you remember they were kind of out the door already, and it was about nine o'clock. David uh, was he was chairing the, the the morning sessions on the leaders' stage. Uh, managed to grab sort of five or ten minutes with him. 
and and we yeah we discussed uh, a little bit of kind of policy and drivers and thought we had some really interesting points about that platform that you mentioned George that we now find ourselves on that actually allow and provides businesses with that stable enough platform to to really take their sustainability onto the next level so uh, here's David Simmons talking to me at ED Live. Hello David how, how are you how's, how's things at um, ED Live so far I mean you obviously we've just registered uh, we're in the speakers lounge now and we're looking at um, you're speaking in the first session this morning are you looking forward to it yeah look hi morning um, it's um, it's it's what nine o'clock and it's looking pretty buzzy already really looking forward to a good energetic day yeah and you're speaking on a session focused on policy regulation and drivers mm. um, and the presentation you're actually speaking on is is titled uh, beyond carbon the other environmental opportunities for business so what are those opportunities for business talk me through your your presentation this morning sure so we're talking i mean the 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 exhibition here is about sustainability and so often sustainability gets brought back just to environmental issues and environmental issues just get brought back to carbon and carbon and and energy is 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 a huge game in town for for business um lots of opportunities to to innovate to, to cut cost but also waste security innovation vision there are so many other opportunities that exist for business that that it's really important for for busy environment and sustainability managers to think wider than just energy and just carbon and on the sort of looking at the broader policy landscape Mm. um politically we've we've, obviously there's cop 21 there's the sdgs there's a circular economy Mm. package that's just been agreed Mm. um a lot of people looking from the outside in might suggest that that's enough, that, that, that that's enough of a platform for, for businesses to now take their sustainability agendas on to the, to the next level. Would you agree with that in terms of the frameworks that are now in place? I think regulation is, is a part. Um, if, if we just think about regulation, the, the, the challenge on the greenhouse gas and carbon agenda, if we just focus there for a moment, is that we have this fantastic rhetoric from government about this five-year long-term vision of being the leader, which it really represented and pushed hard at COP21. And then you've got this near-term agenda of deregulation, of, of, of reducing support to, to low carbon. And, and, and so the, there is still a challenge, which hopefully we'll learn about today, more from, from DEC as they talk, about how they will keep that support in the short term to allow those long-term solutions. And just building on that then, I mean, um, we mentioned the circular economy package mm. there. You're going to be talking about things like natural capital as well yeah. in the session this morning. What other kind of enablers or opportunities or drivers are there that you can kind of see on the horizon that you think will really take us into the the new sustainability era, if you like. Oh, look, I mean, I think if, 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 if people are, are here and people listening to your podcast, regulation is an important thing. But let's not kid ourselves that by complying with regulation that we drive ourselves to a long-term sustainable economy and also business that, that thrives. Mm. Regulation is the backstop for business. If your listeners and, and for those of you who are, who are, who are active ED practitioners sh- should, should know that, that as well as just regulation, there's all this area around innovation, vision, resilience, new ways to compete, to engage, connect with customers, provide trust, grow your business. And that's just a much richer, more fertile way of thinking about environmental and sustainability opportunities than just regulation. So it's about sort of going beyond compliance, if you like, isn't it? I I think let's absolutely say regulation does provide that minimum and let's celebrate that. Um, but, but, But government certainly doesn't have all the answers, nor should it. Well, I look forward to your session this morning. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us, David. Pleasure. Thanks, Luke. Thank you. 
So fascinating stuff there from from David. I'm sure you'll agree. Um, I particularly like what he had to say about uh, regulation being the backstop then, and and really going beyond compliance. It's about the need to go beyond compliance for businesses that want to take their sustainability um, onto the next level. And so sticking with that theme of beyond compliance, uh, we go from one David to another. David Pickton, uh, Chief Sustainability Officer at construction firm Carillion. I managed to catch up with him, I think it was a couple of hours after I'd spoken to David Simmons. Uh, this was just before David Pickton was uh, was going onto the stage, uh, again on the Leaders Theatre. Uh, and what was particularly interesting with this chat was that just two weeks ago the firm released a sustainability update. I think it was you, George, that covered it? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, and that explained that the company had netted almost £34 million, I think it was, um, from sustainability practices alone last year through behaviour change and big efficiency projects. Uh, so here's me chatting with David just before he was speaking in the Leaders Theatre at ED Live. So we move on from speaking uh, to uh, David Simmons from the Aldersgate Group to another David here. I'm here with uh, David Pickton, Chief Sustainability Officer of Carillion. Hi, David. How are you? Hi. Yeah. Good to see you. So now we're only a few minutes away. Now I know to your, for your before your uh, your session on the ED Leaders Theatre. So I'll keep this conversation brief. But um, the talk you're about to give is on that stage. is titled uh, "What Is Driving Change in Sustainability." So. If in a couple of minutes it's possible to condense that talk, uh, two or three minutes, what, what is driving change in sustainability for you at the moment? Oh, well, it's probably about five things, I think, really, that we see, particularly around the, uh, the continuing search for a competitive advantage. You know, it's such an important demonstrator of a company's reputation and the trust and the value. Uh, so that's a really key point for us in terms of a business case. But people's expectations are very high these days, rightly so. Uh, that would be clients, that would be customers, um, anyone that really accesses our services, but most importantly our own people as well. They, they want us to be a responsible company. They put it so high on our employee survey last year to tell us that the highest thing they cared most about was us being a responsible company. So a big point for our own people too. And when you look at our wider supply chains, when you look at wider society as well, it is a really key part now of a company's reputation and values if it is a sustainable, responsible business. Okay, and so, um, I mean, what's really great about you being here at this point as well is obviously Carillion released the sustainability report two weeks ago now, I think, and uh, it was a fascinating read. There's a really great, if you haven't, if you haven't seen it, it's worth having a check out on, online. We've uh, covered it and we, we included that great infographic. I think it's um, how Carillion is driving a better tomorrow. It's a great infographic. And within that, you've got that... Um, that sort of top-line figure of, I think, £33.8 million that Carillion added to its profit line last year through sustainability efforts. So I guess the first question I had for you on that was, where's the majority of that um, that money coming from? It's a huge chunk. Yeah, it's an important part of a balanced approach to sustainability. We think, you know, you would expect us to be very responsible around the environment, responsible around communities, but we've also got to be responsible around the future of our business. So sustainability embedded into the business case, delivered by our people across our international operations, is what builds that 33.8 million. And it has been building over the last couple of years. You know, we're on target for 40 million, and we can say a little bit more about that in a second. Uh, but the reality is it comes through waste reduction, uh, process efficiency, material reuse, um, finding different ways to work, you know, smarter travel, so we cut down our fuel usage, cut down our carbon footprint. But the fundamental point about that money and that contribution is that it comes from our sustainability 2020 strategy, and those are the only things that we allow to be counted against it. If it delivers against that strategy, if it's sustainable behaviours and actions, we track that every four weeks through the year across the Middle East, Canada and the UK, and build that up to the figure at the end of the year. Okay, so it's about setting ambitious goals and then perhaps not necessarily knowing exactly how you're going to get there, but setting those targets and then 
kind of realising it as you go, but you need those goals in advance in order to be able to reach that end goal, is that correct? Absolutely. This strategy was shaped at the start of the decade, so around 2011 we launched the 2020 strategy, and some parts of it were so stretching we couldn't see how we'd ever get there. But it was great. You know, If they didn't feel stretching, we definitely wouldn't be trying hard enough. And to be fair, some of them we've achieved early, like some of our local spend, around 58% of our, uh, our money going to local and SME companies, uh, our carbon footprint achieved five years early. So these are good things that we were surprised to achieve early. Other things we've still got a lot of work to do, like volunteering. We want to get half of our people volunteering by 2020, and there's a, a lot of work to do there. And um, so you've got the longer-term aim of, of contributing £40 million to profitability from sustainability efforts in Carillion. looks like you're on track to reach that. First question then I had off the back of that was, I mean, how is it that you've been able to so successfully convince, persuade the relevant people within the organisation that investing in sustainability in the long term is, is worth doing now so that you can get, reap those benefits uh, in the long term? Well, I think this is really what we say about building sustainability into the business case. If you can demonstrate how that protects the future of your business, particularly in services and construction, which is such a tough industry, very competitive, uh, and rightly so, because an awful lot of our, our work is for the government. So you'd expect us to be very low margin and, and tight, efficient operations when you're talking about public money. Yeah. So in that really tough competitive industry, sustainability, if it delivers a profit contribution as well, really starts to come to life for people, seeing how it can protect the future of Carillion. So our contribution to profit from sustainability is a really important part of our future and a good balance to the wider business case. And, and finally then, I mean, what, what do you think, I mean, there's, there's sort of seven, seven million left then, I guess, to get to. Uh, what's going to get you to that sort of 40 million mark? Well, we've accelerated that delivery over the last couple of years. So the last two or three years have seen a really rapid rise. We had uh, around about 22 million a couple of years ago, 27 million last year, yep. so it's just short of 34 million now. So what we did was put a real fire into people and seeing how they could personally contribute. And it is everything from a few hundred pounds here and there from someone having a good idea through to 10 tens of thousands of pounds or even a million pounds or so from a major initiative. So the real answer to that is that it's only through our people, only through them sharing best examples with each other. And that may be an example of uh, reducing water usage in the Middle East, or it could be a way of uh, reducing some environmental impact in Canada and the way that heating systems would work. You know, everything and anything is in play as long as it's sustainable, sustainability as well, to demonstrate how we're making a better business, better environment, better society. Uh, And then it's real. It's got to be real and it's got to contribute to profit but from every corner of the business it's fascinating stuff i look forward to hearing a bit more about it in your session in in a few minutes time thank you very much david thank you so again some really great insight then from another ed live speaker particularly around how sustainability is being used to to drive profit in an organization next up after lunch uh, i caught up with tim haywood who's sticking with that note of sustainability driving profit he holds a pretty interesting job title He referred to himself in the session he spoke in as a circus freak. Uh, The reason being that he's uh, a finance director and a head of sustainability, uh, which is quite a rare breed. He works for another construction firm, InterServe. So this is me speaking with Tim just before he appeared on the ED Live stage. So here we are in a very packed ED Live exhibition hall now. It's around about lunchtime. Uh, We move on from Carillion's David Picton talking about convincing the board to invest in sustainability to a man who wears two very interesting hats. Here we are with Tim Haywood, a group finance director and head of sustainability at InterServe. Hi, Tim. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Luke. Good, good. Um, So presumably you you come up with a great sustainability plan and then give yourself the money to execute it. Is Is that right? Well, I suppose you could see it that way, yeah. Um, it, it's, 
it's been a cause of uh, much intrigue and interest the fact that I do wear those two interesting hats yeah. um, and as far as I'm aware I've not come across anybody else in the FTSE who's got that and that does strike me as a little bit odd because from my perspective the the business case for sustainability is such a strong one that why wouldn't a board or a finance director see the merits in all of the various elements that make up the business case of sustainability and it's not all about finance obviously but yeah for me I, I'm an oddity but I feel like I shouldn't be um, and so just get, taking that a step further I mean why do you think that you are the or the oddity because uh, you clearly are an exception to the rule here but and there is such a case for sustainability and investing in it but is it just a case of businesses still not yet waking up and realizing the benefits sustainability offers are we still kind of behind in that area or Maybe something like that. I mean, what I'm talking about this afternoon is is about the language and the translation gap. And I think both the sustainability community and the finance community have got a bit of a temptation to speak in their own language, using all sorts of difficult technical language, whether it's return on invested capital or earnings per share on the one hand, or embedded carbon and CO2 emissions and trading offsets on the other hand and I think what what actually both sides of that equation need to do is sort of demystify themselves a bit strip their case down to the bare essentials and recognise that actually they're both talking about the same thing which is making a, a good sustainable business yeah. and yeah, one of my mantras is good business with a capital G and a capital B is good business yeah yeah Exactly, and uh, not to make you repeat yourself in the session that you're speaking in this afternoon, but when it comes to kind of presenting that compelling case for investment for a sustainability professional that perhaps, you know, maybe reports into the board occasionally and needs to try and convince them to, to invest, what kind of top tips or advice would you have for sustainability professionals that need to try and win over the finance directors in their company? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question, and I think actually it's about thinking of your audience. It's, it's sort of advice 101 really whatever you're presenting to whoever you're presenting it the first thing you've got to do is who you're talking to yeah. so if you're talking to an FD what's he interested in he's interested in risk he's interested in cost he possibly is interested in reputation management mm. he might well be interested in the employer brand and many other things besides mm. and actually within the sustainability world actually what we in the sustainability community you're talking about is exactly that it's mm. about reducing your risk be it supply chain risk or your risk of a, uh, an un, undesirable thing happening yeah. it's about reducing your cost I mean reducing waste is self-evidently a reducing cost yeah. exercise yeah. your employer brand you know the sustainability agenda is very important for the millennials for people of your age actually yeah. Luke yeah. you know, if I can pull you into that yeah, that's fine. Um, and you know they want to know that a business is interested in more than just pounds shillings and pence and making money for shareholders they want to know that a business stands for something yeah. and all of that is in the sustainability's agenda but what the sustainability's people have got to do is make the business case yeah. tell yeah. the FD how much it's going to cost when there's going to be a payback mm. what sort of payback it's going to be because it's not always in year at the bottom of the P&L, it might be a bit harder to, to dig it out, mm. but it's there. So 
that case has got to be made. And on the FD side, you know, they've got to stop being the guys who know the cost of everything and the value of nothing yeah. and start recognising that value comes in many different shapes and sizes. Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting point, actually, because we had a uh, sustainability skills event a couple of months ago, and what, one of the skills we were sort of discussing there was this, um, how do you persuade, get the board on board. Um, and what came out of that was this... this theory of kind of the art of good storytelling and that a, yeah. a sustainability professional actually needs to be a sort of a good storyteller to get that case across it's, it's quite interesting and, and i think that's the case for making any case actually yeah. you know your, your case is only as good as the story you wrap around it yeah interesting and um so then just moving things on a little bit then obviously i've, I've spoke to david pickton from carillion earlier um you're obviously operating within serve within the construction industry also so having a quick look at that industry as a whole and where that is now in terms of its sort of progress on sustainability is there any kind of key opportunities or enablers that you you still see that are on horizon specifically for kind of perhaps big construction firms that could really take them on to the next level yeah i mean i think the big construction firms in the UK are, are doing a pretty good job actually yeah. you know we have been embracing the the green agenda we've been embracing zero waste to landfill and considerate constructor and all that sort of stuff for many many years and uh, we also in Interserve operate in the Middle East where the bar is a lot lot lo- lower and actually just deploying some of the things we've done in the UK has transformed our Middle East operations and it's Bobby Basics for us in the UK but for them it's oh crikey if you do that you really do save a lot of money so it's harder to make big improvements in the UK but I think one thing that is certainly interesting us because we both build and then operate and maintain business buildings as an FM provider it's the idea of smart buildings it's the idea of constructing something that will tell you how to optimise energy consumption mm-hmm. you know all the the use of technology that will enable you to schedule your preventative maintenance that will make your joined up uh, interactions with the supply chain where to get things from by virtue of having built in the systems in the first place we're talking a little bit about internet of things here are we sort of connecting maybe a bit of internet of things certainly big data yeah uh, you know the the idea that you can embed in your your toilets a flush counter that feeds into a computer system that tells the cleaning operative when it needs to be cleaned Interesting. when the toilet paper needs to be changed you can save a lot of money on the fm like that but you know on a bigger scale how to optimize use of energy where the peaks and the troughs are how to get your your heating to come on in the right places in the right zones and the right times for the right occupants you know all that stuff i think is quite exciting yeah no it really is that's a good note to end on well you've got about 20 minutes now until your session tim so thank you very much for joining us and uh, we'll speak soon thanks luke so that was tim hayward speaking about how sustainability can be used as a almost a, a revenue driver in itself I think as well, it's, it's worth pointing out that you know we've had we've had speakers on this podcast already that are that are central to the kind of construction industry as a whole. Yeah, we've already heard from um, a couple of Davids uh, taking a real kind of Goliath-sized challenge to um, you know really promote sustainability in a in an industry that's kind of model is tear down, rebuild, tear down, rebuild, mm. and you know these are companies that are not just trying to. Um, survive this kind of low carbon transition they're trying to thrive they're trying to lead the way mm. um, 
you know, Agnes, Angus McNeil from the um, chair of the Climate Change Committee said that the infrastructure in London was built by the Victorians, for the Victorians, you know. Mm. We don't get cholera epidemics anymore, which is, <laughs> is nice, but at the same time, it, they're not well equipped to, to deal with low carbon and the practices to, to build these houses need need a revamp. Mm. So it's nice it's nice to know that you have you have these companies and you also have the Barclay Group with their carbon neutral goal. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um you've got Hansen like really kind of pioneering this demand side um response, response yeah. thing. Um it's good to know, especially as someone who would like to buy a house one day that I can, you know, sit in and think, okay, I'm not getting cholera and mm. it's not emitting carbon. This mm. is a good house. And also an industry a platform for innovation. Uh, correct, yes. So we recently reported on their breakthrough carbon and capture storage uh, technology. Within constru- Oh yeah, within the construction industry, mm-hmm. Carbon Trust were involved, weren't they? Yeah. That's right. So, um, yeah, so much going on in, the, in that industry. And actually, uh, reminds me, Daniel O'Connor from Warpit and that first session actually, which I mentioned earlier, um, I asked him in the panel discussion that followed that session if there was kind of one particular industry he thought that had great room for uh, resource efficiency drive and his answer was the construction industry I guess because there is so much process that can be made more efficient. So yeah it's fascinating that ED Live was able to provide that kind of broad landscape view and then at points really hone in on specific sectors and industries. So anyway um, day one then drew to a close. Uh, you guys went out for a, uh, a Mexican. I hear the tequilas were flowing. Um, <laughs> I got an early night because the next morning I was chairing uh, three hours worth of sessions uh, and for our speaker interviews on day two we had a particular uh, focus on resource efficiency. I first spoke with uh, Liz Goodwin uh, on the leader stage so we were fresh off the leader stage actually just uh, we'd just spoken about disruptive business models. George then spoke to Nick Cliff, wasn't Nick it? Cliff yeah, from, from Innovate UK. UK. Uh, both of which have a, a really nice resource efficiency circular economy theme. So let's start with uh, Liz Goodwin. Um, so she was stepping down, actually. She's stepping down end of June, I think, after nine years as CEO with RAP. Um, so we, were, we had the privilege of hosting Liz for her last UK uh, speech. Um, and this was us having a chat just after that session on disruptive business models. Liz Goodwin, we're fresh off the, the leader, st- leader stage. Uh, great session there. It's fantastic on disruptive innovation. Some really good speakers there. How did you, first of all, how, how did you find the session? Did you enjoy it? I thought it was fascinating. I mean, it's, it's a privilege to be on a stage with two innovators who are really doing stuff um, because we work with, a lot with companies um, who are innovating and trying to bring about disruption. Mm. Um, but to actually hear them and talking about their own experiences... Um, it's, it's fantastic and it's great to see. Great. And I'm, I'm sure listeners of this podcast will be aware that actually uh, you're soon to be stepping down from RAP, nine years as CEO, 15 years with the organisation. So first of all, uh, thank you uh, on behalf of ED Readers for all of the work you've done and hard work to sort of really drive circular economy processes here in the UK. Um, I wanted to ask you if you could briefly uh, summarise uh, your time with RAP and how things have developed over those uh, 15 years in terms of the UK's approach to the circular economy, how seriously businesses are taking resource efficiency now and, and where things sort of stand at the moment. I think um, when, when, I, when RAP first started, um, we really weren't thinking about things as resources. You know, We were still talking about waste and we were just sort of trying to get recycling going and creating markets for recycled materials. And then we woke up to the fact that this was actually resources and you could make this all sustainable mm. and actually products made out of recycled materials didn't need to be second grade and they, they were actually just products. Sure. And, and then 
gradually the thinking developed so we got more understanding about circularity and waste prevention and design um, and then ultimately different business models and really starting to tackle some of the big issues around consumption and our use of stuff overall. So I think we've, we've moved enormously in the last 15 years. Um, but as I said this morning, you know, there's still so much to do to actually make this mainstream. Yeah. And on that, I mean, so looking forward, are you optimistic about the future of sustainability? Do you think there's any kind of big opportunities that must be seized upon to really drive that sort of low-carbon, resource-efficient agenda? I am I'm generally a very optimistic person, but I think there are some big challenges. And until um, we get real traction within government and businesses about understanding about our use of resources and embedding it into the economy. So this isn't something off on the side. This is about our future sustainability, the sustainability for future generations. Um, the next 25 years, you know, how are we going to be living in, in 25 years in the UK? Mm. What's our use of resources going to be like? Mm. And what's, what does the future look like for you then? What's on the horizon? Well, I am going to have a bit of a break <laughs> immediately, um, but then I'm planning to do a load of other things. Um, I just want to do a bit of a mixture and do things differently. So and you'll still be engaging with rap, I suppose? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure I will, because okay. I've still got lots of friends there and still very interested and care about the work they're doing. Well, best of luck for the future, Liz. Thank you very much for joining us here at ED Live. Thank you. Thank you. Fascinating stuff there from, from Liz Goodwin. Real pleasure to have her um, provide one of her final speeches there at ED Live on behalf of RAP. And actually one of the quotes of the, the two days for me came in the session I was chairing when she said, change will always happen. The question is whether or not we accept the terms of that change or have it thrust upon us. Which moves us nicely into our uh, next speaker interview, which was conducted while I was on stage uh, in that particular session with Liz Goodwin. Um, George, you spoke to Nick Cliff, didn't you? Yep, I spoke to Nick Cliff, who oversees resource efficiency at Innovate UK. Um, I caught up with him at the resource efficiency stage. He was on the resource efficiency stage. He was talking about remanufacturing. Remanufacturing, yeah. that's right. And um, for anyone that's not in the know, uh, remanufacturing is the rebuilding, rebuilding of a product uh, to specifications of the original manufactured product using a combination of reused, repaired and new parts. So thank you very much, Google, for that. Um, and so this was a chat so you were having after the session was it just after the session we had a brief chat and uh, my first question to Nick were what barriers needed to be overcome for UK businesses to implement a more resource efficient business model okay and this was his answer that's a good question I think like we spoke about during the, the, the presentation, there are all sorts of barriers, not just the ones that I've thought up, but also the ones from the audience who, who had some really interesting questions. There's definitely uh, challenges around a, a proper definition and standards for remanufacturing, which I think will underpin any uh, developments in that area, UK or otherwise. Within the UK, I think that we need to think very carefully about how we might fund businesses to move towards these remanufacturing models, how we might empower them to do it. We need to work on our basic skills and, and make sure that the right workforce capabilities are there to support the development of these businesses. And of course, where Innovate UK comes in, there's definitely the need for specific technologies to facilitate these high-value remanufacturing approaches. Last month, we wrote an article about an academic who suggested that even Tata still could be embracing remanufacturing as a potential solution to the crisis it finds itself in. Do you agree that this is something that the heavy industry really needs to focus on a lot more as a way of creating more resilient business models? Absolutely. I think that remanufacturing 
can, could and should play a part, a big part, in large-scale heavy industries' approach to how they do business. We are, in fact, supporting Tata Steel in several projects, uh, one of which I referenced during the project, that does relate to the remanufacturing of torpedo axles. I think where you, have, uh, where you operate in the UK, we have certain strengths and we have certain weaknesses. Uh, and to compete globally uh, in, in just businesses related to raw materials, we have to be smarter. We have to capitalise on the technology uh, we have available, the academic rigour and expertise that we can bring to bear on developing new business models and new processes to help keep us competitive uh, and keep improving productivity. We're obviously going to have a, see a more focus on innovation when it comes to remanufacturing in a circular economy. So for you, what one innovation really stands out at the moment as a potential enabler or driver for the circular economy? Blimey. There's so many. For me, what's changed and what's most relevant is the fact that it's just no longer being viewed as niche. Companies, you know, we're standing up there uh, at the talk and you've got a, a, a tiny little startup involved in office furniture who are building their whole business around remanufacturing. Uh, and there's all sorts of little individual innovations that go into that. And next up to speak, you have a company the size of Hewlett-Packard, who, giant global multinational player, also very seriously delivering, developing, and utilising remanufacturing as part of their overall product offer. So for me, the biggest change is the fact that everyone from the smallest SME to the biggest extant multinational is recognising the possibility. And then moving forward from there, um, we can really start to see where we go. And this will be underpinned by inspection, by resurfacing, by better monitoring, by quality control systems, by rapid assessment, by automation, by uh, better logistic support, through the Internet of Things to monitor performance. The list goes on and on and on. For me, it's the attitude shift that's the key thing. The technology will follow. Nick, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, great to hear such positive talk about um, remanufacturing in the circular economy, particularly in relation to the Tata Steel crisis. It's not the first time. I've written a piece a couple of weeks ago from an academic that uh, had also mentioned that Tata Steel and other big, um, big manufacturers should be really looking at um, the circular economy as potential solutions and additional revenue drivers as a way of moving towards uh, more resilient production processes and supply chains. So, Good to see that getting another mention there at ED Live. Um, so finally, the sixth podcast interview from the two days was with none other than uh, Ramon Aratia from Interface. Obviously, the Interface story is in itself a really inspirational one uh, in terms of how a business has been able to, to transition itself to become a real leader on sustainability. Now, if you if you can hear some strange noises in this uh, in this next um, interview, it's because uh, there were some. There was some drilling and construction work, or sort of the taking down of the stages, uh, literally right around us when we were having a chat. So it was a difficult interview from my perspective to be able to carry out. Um, but luckily, uh, we did manage to get one take on it, uh, and Ramon provides us with some real insight into um, leadership and positive change, which is what the session he was uh, just talking on was was about. So uh, this is the chat we had to to wrap up ED Live. 
Okay, so we're, uh, we're at the uh, ED Leaders Theatre. Uh, it's closing down time now. Uh, it's a really busy session, though, the last session there, and I'm joined by Mr. Ramon Arashia. How are you? Hi, Luke. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. So you've come all the way from Interface's offices today. From, from where, where are you based? I'm based in Spain. Okay. I'm lucky to, to work from, from home. Uh, but then this morning I was in Milton Keynes uh, looking at the carbon footprint of our transport with our transport supplier for the UK. Ah, interesting. Flying back tonight? Yes. <laughs> okay, busy. Um, so you were speaking on, on the leader stage just now about uh, leadership and positive change and thought it would be a great way of kind of ending uh, this launch, this first podcast, with some, some inspiration, optimism for the future. Um, the interface story is, of course, an uh, inspirational one in itself. Um, especially how quickly the brand has moved towards this real leadership position on sustainability. I wondered if you could just briefly explain what the key enablers for that transition have been over time. I think for us it was just a big, uh, a big transition, which was having the ambition to, to, uh, to be daring and have this goal of mission zero mm. um, by 2020. That changed the whole game of sustainability. Then we became a cult a story uh, as a company and then we've been making other transitions like one is like a, to move towards m- measuring at product level yeah. and product is really the most core thing in organizations and, and that has really anchored sustainability in all the processes and now we are in the middle of the next transition which is about more you know services and how we spend Okay, so uh, one other sort of big uh, buzzword we write about quite a lot on ED is, um, is collaboration, uh, and something that's talked about a lot. Uh, action-wise, though, it's still, there's still sort of room for, room for improvement and for things to be delivered upon. wonder what your thoughts were on that and what needs to happen to really use collaboration as a way of uh, driving sustainability. Yeah, collaboration obviously is, is, is the key because at the end of the day with your customers, you need to collaborate, to innovate, to deliver products, to create, to co-create something. You need to collaborate across all the value chain, including your internally, you need to collaborate with suppliers. But it's not just collaboration for the sake of it. I think it's collaboration about aligning um, the, the whole value chain and, and, and it's co-designing pro- new processes, co-designing new products. I think this is the key, like a collaboration with the strategic aims not just collaborate for the sake of it. Sure. And uh, so finally, I mean, uh, as a way of perhaps signing off this podcast, um, wanted to get your secrets to success for, for sort of sustainability leadership. What pieces of advice would you have for, for listeners of this podcast looking to become real sustainability leaders? I think the first thing is really truly understand what is your sustainability impact, your social and your environmental impact, and face the elephant in the room when you discover that what, you, what is the biggest impact is not really comfortable. Perfect. Great way to end. Ramon, thank you very much. I'll let you get back to the airport. Thanks, Luke. Thank you. What a note to end on. That's it from us uh, this week. We hope you enjoyed listening to the first ever ED podcast. Uh, I'm not sure that all future episodes will include six industry interviews, but we'll we'll do our best. Thanks to Matt and George. Uh, thanks from me, actually, to you both for, for all the hard work you put in uh, this week. You can now go and get some well-deserved rest. Obviously, this podcast is uh, specifically for you, our readers, um, so we'd really welcome your feedback on it. Uh, What are the key themes or topics you'd like to hear about? Which industry experts would you like to listen to to get some inspiration on your morning commute? Uh, Let us know by um, emailing us at uh, podcast at fav-house.com. So, on next week's episode of Sustainable Business Covered... Uh, we're not quite sure what will be on it. Uh, it's quite a busy week. I'm out on Monday uh, having a chat with Primark's Head of Ethical Trading 
Paul Lister and then Wednesday Matt you're involved I am off to the Sustainable Communications Conference which I'm hoping I won't have to repeat again on next week's podcast because yeah. it's quite a tongue twister yeah it's uh, ED Sustainability Communications Conference on the Wednesday George you're on Thursday I believe I'll be attending an event uh, to focus on the circular economy okay nice and very interesting we'll have to wait and see what that is and uh, I'm then meeting with PNG's Global Sustainability Brand Director on Thursday too so lots on but you'll have to wait and see where this podcast will take us next week so we'll see you next Friday that's goodbye from Matt bye goodbye from George bye and goodbye from myself goodbye goodbye